The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. All right, Amos chapter 4. So everybody found it? You getting better? A little quicker? Learning where the book of Amos is? Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. And we're going to be reading and studying beginning in verse 6 to the end of the chapter. Would you... Join with me in prayer one more time before we begin our study together. And Father, this is a a weighty word, and I pray for light and heat this morning. Light that would light up our paths that we walk, each one of us individually. That there would be illumination, that we could see the the potholes and the pitfalls ahead of us, that we would be able to avoid them and walk in ways everlasting. And for heat, Lord God, this morning, that would not harden us as clay, but would soften us to make us able to be shaped and molded and conformed more and more to your image, Holy Spirit, work through the foolishness of preaching by the power of your word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take a seat. Well, those of you that have been with us for some time, maybe you remember when we studied the book of Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, as the law is given, the people are entering into this covenant with God, there are blessings spoken upon the people of Israel if they walk in obedience. Blessings for obedience. But then there are also curses, curses that are spoken to the people of Israel if they don't walk in obedience, but rather walk in disobedience to the Lord their God. Curses for disobedience. The Lord speaks to the people through Moses In Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse 20, these are some of the curses for disobedience. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. There is a a leaving of God. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering 
to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish and the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. This is just a, a very small sampling of the curses spoken on the people of Israel if they walk in disobedience. And I, I read through this small portion, and we could continue going through Deuteronomy 28, and you would recognize if you have Deuteronomy 28 open and Amos chapter 4 open and compare those, you would see so many similarities of what God says He is doing with the people of Israel in Amos chapter 4. So many of those things that were spoken all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. The people of Israel, they were to be in covenant relationship with God. They were to relate to the world around them in such a way that it was a display of their relationship with God. Yet instead of it being a display of their relationship with God, what we read about in Amos is that the people of God just conformed to the ways of the world. They no longer related to the world as a reflection of their uh, relationship with God, but instead they adopted the ways uh, of the world. They adopted the worship of the world, a false worship. And we have to ask the question as we look at this, did Israel really believe what God had said? They had the Word of God. They knew in their minds the Word of God, but they failed to believe that what God said He would do, that He indeed would do. And I ask a question this morning, do we believe what God says? Does God really say what He means? Does God really mean what He says? That we also are in a covenant relationship with God. That church, we have been bought with the blood of Christ. That we have been washed of our sins. That we have been adopted into His family. That we can look at each other and say, brother and sister in Christ. That we can relate to God as our heavenly Father. And we have been called to walk in His ways. And as our Heavenly Father, He loves us. And as a father loves his child, sometimes that means there is correction. 
At times there is discipline, not to destroy us, but to train us up, to walk properly in a way worthy of the gospel so that we might be ambassadors for Christ. Brothers and sisters, Amos chapter 4 is a heavy passage. It's a sobering passage of Scripture. It's one that should cause us to examine ourselves, what we experience in life, and how we are relating to God. And is there a need in our lives to draw near to the Lord? To see what God is doing and say, I need to turn to the Lord in this. We see God's work in trying to get the people of Israel's attention, wanting them to draw near to Him. That's really what we see in verses 6 through 11. All of these attempts to get the people of Israel to turn back to God. We read in verse 6, first of all, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. We're going to see five ways that God worked to try and draw Israel back to Him, away from their false gods, away from false worship. And the first thing God says is, I gave you cleanness of teeth and lack of bread. Famine. They experienced famine coming upon them. But you know what really struck me when I read this is the way that God presents this through Amos to the people of Israel. He doesn't say, I withheld. I gave you, I gave you cleanness of teeth. I gave you lack of bread in all your places. Isn't that interesting? It's a different perspective than what we might first think. I would think, I lack, God withheld. God says, no, I gave. I gave you. This was intentional. This might even challenge our perspective of God's goodness and God's provision in our lives. I want you to understand that God never fails to give any good thing to His children. Even a lack of bread, a lack of food, can be rightly understood as a gift from a giving God. This is God in His mercy reaching out to the people of Israel, saying, this is what I'm going to do for you because I love you, and I want you to return to me. So I will give you clean teeth. There's no need to brush There's no need to floss because there's nothing there going into your mouth. Your teeth are sparkling clean. Not because you have the best dentist, oral hygiene. No, it's because there's nothing going in. And lack of bread 
in all your places. And I would ask, rather than grumbling about our lack, can we say in this, why has God, or what, excuse me, what has God given in this lack that I'm experiencing? If you experience some lack, that you recognize something in your life that you think, I, I, I expect to have, I should have, I would like to have, and I don't have. What has God given in this lack that I'm experiencing? What is He doing? How is God working in this and through this difficulty? And as we see with the people of Israel, ultimately His desire is to draw them to Him. And God's desire in withholding is actually a giving for us so that we might have more of Him, that we might look to Him, that we might draw near to Him. Do you notice this refrain at the end of every one of these things that God says He has done? Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. That's what God so wanted was for His people to turn to Him. In verses 7 and 8, we see this second warning that God gave to the people of Israel. I withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. So intentional was the Lord. I'm going to send rain here, and I'm not going to send rain there. I'm going to put rain in this city, but not that one, over in that field, but not this one. These cities would go to the places where they believed there was water and they could be satisfied, but there was not enough. And again, I say this is God giving them, God working. Yes, withholding, but with a good intention of drawing the people to Him. Even as we read back in Deuteronomy 28, the land being like iron, the heavens like, like bronze. In verse 9, we see the third warning that God gave. So patient, so persistent is God in working to draw His people back to Him. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees the locusts devoured. But there was no return to him. In Haggai chapter 2, verse 17, a similar occasion, the Lord speaks to the people 
and says, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Have you experienced difficulty? And has it drawn you to the Lord? The fourth warning, verse 10, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. As these warnings continue, they increase in intensity. Not just a lack of bread and a, and a cleanness of teeth, but no, now we, we even see pestilence. Now we see young men being killed with the sword, the future of Israel perishing by the sword. Even the stench of your camp going up into your nostrils, that unmistakable stench of death. Have you smelled that? Joel and I just yesterday passing by an animal that was struck on the highway on our bikes, and the stench, it just fills the air. It goes into your nostrils. It's horrible. And God says, this is what I have done I have brought this into your camp that, that not only through what you experience in, in your stomach and the pains of hunger, and not just what you see with your eyes, but through all of your senses, even what is coming into your nostrils, I'm trying to get your attention, Israel. I'm trying to, to draw you back. Yet you did not return to me again and again and again. In verse 11, we see the fifth warning and the final warning here in this passage. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning Yet you did not return to me. God was overthrowing them. Even back in chapter 3, verse 6, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? God is working intentionally trying to bring his people back to him. And we see the same refrain over and over again, yet you did not return to me. And church, what I want you to understand is that this was not the cruelty of God. This was done out of the kindness of God this is the kindness of God. I gave you cleanness of teeth. This is what, what God was doing with great intent to draw his people back to him. 
It's God's kindness that leads to repentance. How do we understand God's kindness? How do we recognize God's kindness? Sometimes, church, that kindness is a severe kindness. As it was for the people of Israel as they had gone off into idolatry, as they had walked into false worship, as they, in this time, in the city of Bethel, in the city of Dan, there were golden calves that they set up that Jeroboam, their king, raised up and said, these are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And God is jealous for his people. God wants to draw his people back to him. And so he shows this severe kindness to them. Doing all, all of these things that we would look at and we would say, these are terrible. Yes, these are hard. Yes, The anguish that we would experience in going through things like this. But it's out of God's kindness. This probably challenges. I know it does for me. My understanding of of God and of Scripture and, and the way that God works in my life. And the perspective that I have on things. I, I, I think of verses like Romans chapter 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Well, doesn't that mean that God just always does what makes us happy? That God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives? Brothers and sisters, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that we walked in disobedience to him, that we were contrary to him, that we were undeserving of any kindness that he would show to us. Yet in his grace, he drew us. In his grace, he gave us new life. In his grace, he filled us with his spirit. In his grace, he adopted us into his family. That in his grace, he has given us an inheritance. In his grace, we are walking even now in eternal life. And we look forward to the day when we're joined with all of the brothers and sisters through all of eternity, worshiping God in the glorious heavenly kingdom. This is God's grace. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. How do we understand the goodness of God? Millard Erickson, I was reading in his book of theology this week, he's writing on the presence of evil in the world and how we are to understand good and evil. And he writes this, We are inclined to identify good 
with whatever is pleasant to us at the present, and evil with what is personally unpleasant, uncomfortable, or disturbing. Yet the Bible seems to see things somewhat differently. This, then, is the good. Listen to this. What is good? Not personal wealth or health, but being conformed to the image of God's Son. Not our short-range comfort, but our long-term welfare. Do you think the people of Israel were comfortable when their stomachs were grumbling? When they were trying to till the soil that was like bronze because of lack of rain? When they experienced pestilence? When they went to battle and their young men were killed? Do you think that was comfort for them? It certainly was not, but God was doing it for their long-term welfare. That they would be able to see in this the severe kindness of God and so that they might turn, repent, and return to the Lord. God uses these things to, to teach us, church. Psalm 119, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Does that mean affliction can be good? Absolutely. If it draws you to him, if it's an instrument to get you returning to the Lord, walking in His ways, training you in righteousness, the prophet Hosea says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us. Does that seem bizarre? Let's return to Him. He has torn us. Yes, but there was intent this severe kindness of a tearing, Hosea continues, he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. I can imagine the people of Israel listening to Amos speak these words and think, Amos, you are radical. You are off base. You have lost touch with reality. I mean, look at us. Look at us, Amos. We're religious. Look at all that we do. If you're still in Amos chapter 4, we only need to go back a few verses. Verse 4 of Amos chapter 4. They brought sacrifices every morning. They brought tithes every three days. Verse 5, a sacrifice of thanksgiving they offered. Verse 5, they proclaimed 
free will offerings. Thank offerings, free will offerings, tithes, sacrifices. These were the people that were in the pews. These were the people that Amos went to and spoke to and says, don't you see what God is doing? He's trying to get you to return to him, yet you do not return. Amos, you're being radical. You're being a little strict, aren't you, Amos? We're even gathered in worship, they might say. Our sin isn't all that bad. Maybe we've left off a few things here and there, but is it really that bad? Maybe they weren't murderers, but their lack of righteousness and their deeds of justice toward others was leading to a positive harm in their community, and it was an offense against God. And do you notice something in those offerings that the people of Israel were making? Now, these were offerings to their God, who they thought brought them out of Egypt, who they worshipped as a golden calf. But there's no sin offering. There's a free will offering. There's a thank offering. There's no recognition of their own sin of their own failure, of needing to come to God with the blood of an animal, that their sins might be dealt with. There is no recognition of sin on their part. Where was their acknowledgement of need for God's mercy and God's forgiveness? There was none. Amos was just a regular guy, a farmer, we read in chapter 7. A tender of figs, a shepherd. And even when Amos goes to the people of Israel and he's speaking these words that were, were to serve as words of correction... Even the people's own pastor, Amaziah, we're going to meet him in chapter 7. You know what he says? Amos, shut up. Be quiet. Stop preaching. Stop prophesying. Leave the people alone. Amos was calling them to open their eyes to see what God was doing. And to turn to him. Yet they would not. Do you remember in Amos chapter 1, we went through seven nations? Seven nations that surrounded the people of Israel. That God was speaking words against. For all of the evil that they had committed? But here, church, when he's calling people to return to him, there's no mention of these other nations. 
There's no mention of their sins. This is a place of privilege that they have. That God's severe kindness toward them was to bring them to repentance. God wasn't doing this to the other nations. He wasn't working in this way. He wasn't in covenant relationship with them. No, he was with Israel. And he wanted Israel to return to them. And so he was very intentful. He was very purposeful and deliberate in the work that he was doing because he wanted them to return. And church, this is where it gets hard. Because what's the way that we look at this passage? Like Amos chapter 1, as, as Amos was going around all these nations around Israel and speaking these words of prophecy against them, and I imagine Israel sat there pretty smug and, and comfortable. Yeah, let them have it. From the outside looking in, that Israel would have been those that were looking down into the microscope, examining, diagnosing, trying to understand the wrong of all of these other nations, but unaffected Israel, unaffected personally. And is that the way that we read this passage? Oh, Israel, Israel, Israel. Look at how much they blew it. Look at how terrible they are. Look at their ignorance. Look at how they didn't respond to God working in their lives. Look at all of the hardship that they went through, yet they didn't seek the Lord. And as I've worked through this passage, as I've been studying and reading and praying in this passage, there's an exposure. There's an, a, a ripping of the heart that, ah, God, what are you doing among us? I shouldn't be the one looking into the microscope, trying to examine those others that maybe are guilty of this, but I need to see myself as under the microscope, not examining the guilt of Israel, but allowing God to work through His Word to examine me to bring light and heat through His Word into my heart. There's a worldwide pandemic. Did you guys know that? A pestilence. There's upheaval around injustice and racism in our nation. There are tropical storms that are battering the shores of our nation. There's a wildfire just over the hill from us. Furloughs, warnings of upcoming furlough, crop damage, underemployment, unemployment, all of these things. I think, God, what are you doing? What are we experiencing and how are we responding? And I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that these are judgments of God for our sin. It's not what I'm saying, so don't hear me say that this morning. But what I am saying is 
we should look at these things and say, God, is this your severe kindness to draw us closer to you? What are you doing and how are you working in this? Are these things serving the purpose that I would be coming closer to you? Are these things causing us to examine ourselves? Search me, O God, and know my heart, the psalmist cries out. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If we're experiencing any difficulty, any hardship, These should be questions that we ask. These should be prayers that we pray. Search me, God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. Is there anything grievous in me? Is there anything that I have have done, God, that you are wanting me to repent of, to, to come to you? Lead me in the way everlasting. But Israel would not return to the Lord. Yet you did not return to me. Yet you did not return to me. After every one of these, yet you did not return to me. Church, let that not be true of us. That if we are going through difficulties, if we are experiencing things like what we are reading in Amos 4 or any other number of things that we would ask, God, is this your severe kindness? Search me, know me, reveal to me, lead me in your ways, the way everlasting. But Israel would not call out to the Lord. And so the Lord's response, we read in verse 12, their stubbornness is met with judgment. Therefore, thus I will do to you. After so much patience, so much time, yet you did not return to me. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. We're not told precisely what God is going to do to the people of Israel. But in Amos, we're given this strong indication of being overthrown, of being taken captive, even like in chapter 4, verse 2, The days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And ultimately, that is what would happen to the people of Israel. The Assyrian captivity. This is what God would do. And he's saying, because I will do this, prepare to meet your God. Are you prepared? Israel certainly wasn't. I think if, if Amaziah, their pastor, their priest, had come to them and spoken to them, prepare to meet your God, O Israel, they probably would have thought this was an invitation to a ball. Let's get dressed up. Let's get ready to be treated like royalty. Prepare to meet your God. No, this is coming from Amos. This isn't a ball. This is a brawl. This is strap on your helmet, put in your mouth guard. Prepare to meet your God because you have not responded. 
because you have been defiant, because you have been stubborn, unrepentant. God is saying, I will come to you in judgment. This was their doing. This was their choice. God provided plenty of warnings. God provided ample opportunity to turn from their unrighteous ways, to begin walking in ways of righteousness and justice. But it was a deliberate refusal. It was a neglect. It was a procrastination. We'll get to that later. But the refusal to return would bring about their own judgment. And it's almost as if Israel had forgotten who it is they were dealing with. And Amos reminds them in verse 13, do you see this? Behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. This is the awesome God that they were dealing with. This God was a great God. Things seen like mountains that that he had formed, things unseen like the wind and the thoughts of man. What should be the joy of of the morning, the start of a new day. Instead, God makes darkness. This is God who treads on the heights of the earth, the highest peaks. This is a great and an awesome God, a powerful God. Isaiah chapter 40 tells us, That this God, he measures the waters in the hollow of his hand. This is God who marks off the heavens with a span. He measures them like this. From there to there. Have you spent time lately looking up into the night sky? Have you considered how vast they are? And yet, for God, they're a span. He has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Do you agree that this is a great and an awesome God? This chapter ends with what seems to be almost a reminder to Israel of who God is. Not golden calves, not Baal, not any number of other false gods, but the Lord, God of hosts, Yahweh, Elohim, the God of a heavenly army. This is the God that had brought them out of Egypt, that had raised them up as a nation, that had given them their name, that had formed them, that loved them. Yet they refused. They worshipped false gods. They ignored the kindness of God in his attempts to turn them. And because they were stubborn, because they would not turn, God was going to send 
judgment. Church, this is where righteousness and where justice must begin. As as we said when we started the book of Amos, this is really a a major theme in the book of Amos, is righteousness and, and justice. With a willingness to turn to God, with a heart that is soft to the Lord's conviction, with a view of God that is so great, so high, so undiluted, so reverential, that we would flee in dread if it weren't for God's invitation to come to him in faith. God was working among his people. God was desirous that they would come to him. God was patient in his kindness toward them. God was committed to his relationship, this covenant relationship that he had initiated with them. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, he asks the, the question of those who were religious, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. The gospel teaches us that we are deserving of wrath and fury Paul makes that clear even as he starts in the book of Romans. He makes clear that everybody is guilty of sin. Everybody is deserving of wrath and fury. But then he begins to expound upon the gospel and remind the reader that it's by grace through faith, that we are justified by faith. And so, too, church, righteousness and justice starts with understanding how high and how holy our God is and how low and rotten we are, how depraved we are. But to understand that God has made a way for us to be brought before him, a way that we can come boldly before him, a way that we can stand before him being declared righteous, not on our own, but in the righteousness of Christ. 
This is the good news, church, that we have this this avenue of repentance where we can turn from our sins and we can turn to our God because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so even as we wrap up our our service this morning, as we take time and the, the music team comes up and leads us in song, I want us to to remember this is the path that we have been called to walk, that we would turn to the Lord, that we would have our eyes opened to the ways that God is working in our midst, and that our hearts would be soft and tender toward Him. Lord, what are you doing in this hardship? How are you working in this trial? How can I be brought closer to you? And I thank you that I have confidence that you are working this together for good. Not my immediate comfort, but my long-term welfare and to the glory of your name. And so as we sing, as we respond to God's word this morning, we get to come forward and we get to partake in communion. We get to take of the bread. We get to drink of the cup. And remember, our standing before God is not based on our own works, our own righteousness, but based on Christ. And he is the way that has been laid out before us to be able to draw near to God. He is the way in which we can come to God in repentance and full of faith. Would you pray with me? Father, as we have this time now to sing, Lord, I pray that you would be examining our hearts that we would be allowing you to search us and to know us in response to your word this morning, that we would be a people that are humble, that we would be a people that are quick to turn to you. And even as we have this privilege and opportunity to come and partake of communion again this morning, Lord, we do so in confidence, in faith, in assurance in what Jesus has done for us. And we come with great gratitude. But Lord, we come also recognizing our sin, not like the people of Israel who had thank offerings and free will offerings, but no recognition of their sin. Lord, we come and we recognize our sin before you. And we recognize our need for Jesus. And that is why we give you thanks. Continue to work in us, Lord God, that we would be people of righteousness and of justice in this world, that we would relate to it as we relate first to you, that we would reflect you in this world. Lord, first we must be broken, first we must be humble before you. And so we come to you in humility, and in praise this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.